You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hi, it's Noah Rosenfarb from Freedom Exit Advisors, here with Michael Platner. Michael serves as the chair of Louis Brisbo's corporate practice group, and his legal practice is focused on helping companies and their owners build value and manage risk. But perhaps as important to our listeners, Michael's also founded or been an early-stage investor in several businesses, especially in the software, internet infrastructure, and cloud computing sectors. And today, one of the things we're excited to talk about is a list that he's developed of 10 impediments to maximizing your exit opportunity. So, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. A pleasure, Noah. Thank you. So, why don't we start, Michael, by you sharing, you know, in your years of experience as both a practicing attorney and an owner, what would you say is the most important thing that a business owner should start doing right now to prepare for an exit? <laughs> That's a tough one, but one clearly rises to the top, and I'd have to say that that is having the mindset of an owner as opposed to an operator. You know, business owners are in it every day, and we're, our mind is on the operation and on the problems of the day. And business owners tend to be experts at a lot of the challenges that they face in the business because they've learned the hard way and they've done it many times over. Whatever widget they're selling, whatever type of people they're employing, whatever services they're providing, we become experts. But the one thing that we're not often accustomed to when we're in that business ditch, I call it once in a while, is really thinking like an investor. And so the best way I think that you can get in the right mindset for thinking like an owner when you're looking at your own business is to start to think of the business as an investor. That's great advice. And and uh, to look at it as an investor, what would you say is kind of the the mindset that they have to adopt? Is there metrics involved? Is it just a way of thinking? Well, it's, it has a 50,000-foot view and then a micro view. Let's start at 50,000 feet. Uh, I advise owners to every day when you walk in your business or at least as frequently as you can on a weekly basis, look around and say to yourself, and typically I would say it to my CFO as well, would you buy this business today if you had the choice and what would you pay? And when you start creating that metric, now I've gone down 10,000 feet to the first metric I start thinking about is what is my business really worth? It doesn't matter if you're really right in the method that you choose to value it. What matters is that you're creating a benchmark and you're starting to track it. And then you can really open up the opportunities to have other people that work with you in the business to start to consider the overall value of the business as one of the key metrics of performance. And obviously, that's going to lead to ultimately a better liquidity event. 
Yeah, that's great advice. It's, uh, I was with an owner the other day. They have about a, a fifty million dollar equity interest in their company, and they're generating a six million dollar uh, pre-tax profit. I'm sorry, there's three million on on his fifty percent. And I said, you know, you're getting a six percent return in this company. You know, he says I never looked at it like that. You know, uh, I said if you had fifty million in cash, would you buy this company? So it's funny that you say it. I think owners don't often think in terms of their equity as a choice. And, and it's just been uh, a cause of, over time, this is where they've invested their time, effort, energy, and money. So, well, and you know, there's two pieces to it, though, also, because on the one hand, you look at, okay, am I getting a good return on my investment? But a lot of guys have built the business up from scratch. So they don't necessarily track how much equity they really have invested, even though that may be a balance sheet item. But when you start to ask the question, what would I pay for it today? That really brings home the idea of value and whether this business has uh, built inside of it an attractiveness, a magnetism that, that would create its premium if you were to go out and sell it that would make it really prepared to be sold when you're ready and that would maximize the value of any sale or therefore also yield potential financing opportunities or, or any number of things. So this kind of you know state of mind, I mean, I see, see owners that are CEOs every day or even owners that just perform as chairman and have a CEO working for them. That, and that's easier when you start to look for that uh, investment mindset. But, but really getting down to the brass tacks of what would you pay for this and what would the next question that pops out of that is, well, what are the things that would cause you as a buyer to discount the value of the business? Yeah, and there are plenty of them. Uh, perhaps your list of 10 is, is a great place to start. So um, why don't you share with our listeners you know, the, the list of 10 impediments that you've come up with over time and, and share some stories of how these came into being. Sure, sure. Well, so as you know, uh, I've practiced law for 30 years as an M&A lawyer serving middle market owners of businesses. Uh, and uh, I also, uh, 12 or 13 years ago, started my own entrepreneurial efforts and, and started some businesses. And, and what I found in representing literally hundreds and hundreds of owners of middle market businesses, as well as having some myself, having exited some of those myself, is is that there are, there are really some fundamental reasons why deals fail to close or why companies get discounted in a sale. And if you work backwards from that end point and say, what are the things that have caused all the deals, of all the deals you've seen, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds, billions of dollars worth of transactions of middle market companies, and, I, and I've watched lots of entrepreneurs become wealthy beyond the paper wealth, but in real cash, what have been the, the decision points or the problems that have caused those situations to go wrong? So just to, for example, uh, we should start talking about financial statements. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, let's start there. So, so financial statements. If I'm a buyer and I'm looking at your business, and, and I've seen countless businesses in this situation where we've been running the business to maximize our personal income and minimize our tax liabilities, and we don't have gap audited financial statements, 
and the buyer comes along with the bank that they want to also use for funding and their own internal criteria for investing in companies, and they want gap financial statements, and they want to see how we talk about our profits, and they want to reps and warranties in the contract that show that our our uh, financial statements have been kept properly so that when they take it over, they understand what's going to be happening. And very often, I've been in a situation where an owner is ready to sell, where the market timing is right to sell, and we look at the internal financial statements, and there's nothing there except for tax statements. And maybe something that was punched out of QuickBooks, maybe something that was punched out from some internal financial reporting that was going on, but we don't have gap financial statements. So the number one thing that does is that changes the time for the due diligence period for an owner. It increases the cost of due diligence, and most importantly, it absolutely gives the buyer an edge in negotiating for discounts because we know that they're going to find items of deduction on the income statement or balance sheet items that give rise to more questions, more issues, and therefore more discounts. Yeah, totally agree. I had an instance where a client, uh, their account receivable reserve, you know, was challenged by the auditor, and that had a big impact, even just in the negotiations and the haircut they had to take. Even though, you know, it's a non-cash item, uh, they had a history of what their write-offs have been, but that that had an impact. It gave the buyer an opportunity to negotiate a haircut. Sure. Deferred revenue is another area where we always see haircuts get taken. Um, working capital adjustments, uh, where we've, we've got non-GAAP and GAAP items getting mixed into the financial statements, uh, arguments over purchase price adjustments. And, you know, all this kind of burns down to another really important part of the conversation. And one of my other 10, uh, of the, of the 10 items that cause problems, it's the inability of the seller to be able to talk in terms of the language of deals, EBITDA and positive cash flow. So that's the other thing that surprises me. I have a, a brilliant uh, seller. Uh, we've got a great business, and, and he's got financial statements that we're going to be able to get an accounting firm to put into some sort of a, a gap format. And I ask him what his EBITDA is, and he has no idea. And and he hasn't tracked it. And so now I know a few things come from that situation. Number one, I know that he hasn't been talking with the people in his company about how to maximize the EBITDA, the earnings before interest amortization, taxes, depreciation. And, and I know that, therefore, nobody's really paying attention to maximizing EBITDA in the company. They're assuming that that's something that's not part of their job. And that's just flat out wrong if you're building, trying to build value into a company. So now we have to go and get recast financial statements. So now we're talking about expense and time, because not only do we have to worry about getting financial statements that can be put into gap format, uh, characterizations, accrual-based statements, and uh, hopefully audited statements, but we're now also talking about um, delays for creating a recast financial statement from those gap statements to try and figure out what is really the cash flow of this business? How much cash for the investment that the investor, that the buyer is going to make, how much cash will it throw out? And, you know, most purchases nowadays are from financial buyers that are, even if they're 
if they've got a strategic bent because they're creating a platform in a particular industry or they're adding on your company, uh, they're, they're still looking, even though they may have a strategic attitude about the business, their bank and, and usually their own boards are still looking at the financial underpinnings of the deal. And so the ability for the business to show what the cash flow is on the certain amount of equity that they've got to put in is critical. And that's what the EBITDA number is, is it's a proxy for cash because it takes out the non-cash items and it takes out the interest items uh, that if they're putting in equity, they're not going to have to pay. So, you know, Michael, one of the sensitivities I, I think owners realize when they start looking at EBITDA is in the personal ad backs. And there's some concern that they might express over, you know, if I show my accountant that I'm, you know, deducting all of these items, uh, are they going to be able to prepare my tax return going forward? You know, are they required to disclose it? So what advice do you have for owners that are struggling with what to disclose and who to disclose it to? if they've been deducting expenses from a tax basis that probably are not tax deductible? Well, I never advise clients and I never myself uh, try and walk that line of, of making deductions that I don't have a reasonable basis to call ordinary necessary business expenses as taken on the tax return. I've found over the years that the, the best, most aggressive tax planning keeps in reserve always a little bit of extra deductions, frankly, so that if you ever do get audited, you've got some negotiating position to, to trade off with things. But, but you know, so, so first off, let's just say that if you're deducting things that you think there's no basis for, that's a level of risk that you're taking besides potentially breaking the law. And, and you should have a CPA who gives you good advice about, you know, what your tax return looks like and, and how this thing is coming out. Um, there's lots of ways to, to save money, but I always tell, I've had a lot of clients over the years who have been led by what I call the tax tail wagging the dog. And, and I always tell them, look, uh, you know, paying taxes is a badge of honor. Um, there's no reason to make all your decisions based on minimizing your income tax. It absolutely makes sense to minimize your income tax as much as legally possible with good planning and good CPA assistance and all that stuff. Um, but uh, but I wouldn't advise uh, getting into a situation where you've got a lot of write-offs that you know flat out are, are not good write-offs. Now, that said, there are lots of things that owners get paid from businesses that are legitimate, ordinary, and necessary business expenses, but in the marketplace, that business wouldn't need to pay a person just doing that job. And so in, in that, and there, there are edges around that, obviously, where, where you could argue whether that full deduction should have been taken or partial deduction. But the point is not to give tax advice right now. The point is to say, look, whatever addbacks there are going to be, most of the addbacks are not going to be because you've overstepped your bounds on taking deductions. Most of the addbacks are going to be because you've paid yourself more than market rate in the form of expenses to the business. Yeah. So how about if we move on to another one of the impediments, which, you know, are uh, relate to the process and procedures that owners use to solidify and reduce the risks in their company around, you know, their key relationships, their employment agreements, their, uh, you know, vendor contracts. What, what stories might you have to share around that? Well, um, obviously, you've, you've talked about a couple of impediments in there. And and so 
let's talk about first uh, poorly documented, unassignable key relationships and commitments, uh, what I call relationship assets, uh, things that add lots of risk that cause a buyer to discount a deal, cause hiccups in getting a deal done. So look at supplier agreements. I had one occasion uh, to work with a client who had a, uh, a vendor that was the vendor of his key raw material, and that vendor was in South America and happened to be his brother. Um, there was no written contract with respect to that material, but to make matters even more complicated, the client was also a partner in his brother's business, a minority partner in South America. So now we had a situation where the price that was being paid by the business for that key supplier's material was anybody's guess whether that was really the legitimate market price. And it was really hard to figure out how you would assure that source of supply going forward unless you started to create a new contract for that and lots more due diligence. So again, had we just had a supply agreement in place with that entity and some uh, research around what the proper market price was for that material, we would avoid a whole due diligence hiccup in that process of the, the buyer analyzing, you know, can I trust that source of supply? But we see these things kind of all the time. So we had another deal we just did where we helped the guy sell his company and he had a friend who had worked for him in the business and at some point that had a parting of the ways and he had let that friend continue to work on premises in the same office and warehouse doing a business within the same industry but with a couple of different products. And it was one of those relationships that they were able to manage without any difficulty. When a buyer came along and saw that relationship, the buyer said, how can we have this person here who theoretically is in an almost competing, if not really competing business? We have no lease with him. We don't have an agreement on keeping confidential our trade secrets, our pricing from him. In fact, uh, the, the client had actually helped his friend build his own website as part of the deal. So there was becoming all sorts of confusion as to who owned what. This worked perfectly well for the client and for his former employee that was now doing business there and actually was a customer of the client and just really reselling under another name. But that none of that was documented in a way that it could have been explained. So what should have looked like a reseller of the client's product simply being housed on the same premises with an agreement to be able to resell materials instead looked like a very unclear situation. And it took over two weeks and about $20,000 of lawyers and lawyers for the buyer and lawyers for the lender running around trying to figure out what this relationship is about and how they could protect against it. And and uh, two weeks at the end of a deal is not what you want to wait, <laughs> you know. Cause well, they, two weeks anywhere in a deal, it, yeah. you know, there's always Murphy lurking behind every corner. And all of us that have been owners of businesses know that our job every day is to to control the things we can control because the universe is generally headed toward chaos no matter what. And and so when there are things that we could have controlled, such as having something written down in clear form, uh, getting the right financial statements done. Um, you know, that's another thing I want to go back and mention about the financial statement issue. You know, uh, my clients forever have said, look, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to spend the money on an audit. I'm going to get a compilation from my CPA firm. You know, uh, I, I think that, that for anybody who's got a business of any sizable 
format that they're hoping to to turn into cash uh, down the road, the compilation really doesn't get you very far. So they say, well, how about I get a review? My CPA firm said that I should get a review, and they'll do many of the things that they would do in an audit. They just won't charge me extra to give me an opinion that my financials fairly state the condition of the company. And that's not a terrible idea if you're really pinching pennies and you've had a rough year and you want to start the process of being able to have an audit. But ultimately, the extra amount of money, especially the earlier the stage business, the better. It's less expensive to start getting audits earlier. And in my opinion, it pays big dividends when you need to borrow money and when you go to sell your company. Yeah, no doubt. So another one of the impediments that uh, I know you like to talk about is you know, death and disability. And um, Talk to me about that. What, what are some of the things you've seen that have created uh, a, a missed opportunity? Well, you know, this gets back a little bit to thinking like an investor as opposed to an operator of the business. Uh, everybody who owns a business has a built-in exit strategy, uh, and that exit strategy is that you're going to die. Uh, we all die. And and so if you don't have a strategy that that it all applies to the business, in the absence of any organized strategy, death is your strategy. And so we advise that you have a lot of the agreements buttoned up between the people that you want to create succession and value in the business and deal especially with the proper partnership agreements, shareholder agreements, um, and especially valuation mechanisms. So I see uh, very frequently uh, a couple partners or a family business, and and they've worked hard to develop shareholder agreements uh, so that they can cover the governance of the business. And they've even gotten good legal advice as to uh, what the shareholders agreement should say about uh, what happens in the event of death. And then they burn down to a provision that says, and in the event of the death of one guy, we're going to have a valuation done by an outside company. And uh, or maybe even more than one outsider, and unless we can agree on it by ourselves, and there's a whole process about how valuations work. I can tell you that more of those agreements end up in litigation than I've seen actually govern the way that things will work. Uh, there's two ways to uh, to help yourself in those situations. Uh, number one is make sure that you've got some sort of uh, key man life insurance or some mechanism that's going to create a fund to be able to buy out a shareholder who is deceased. And number two, make sure that the valuation associated with a shareholder's interest is determined every year or every other year as a regular matter in the company and that everybody's signed off on the methodology and the performance of that valuation well in advance of the event that occurs. Because what we see is that finally when there is an event that occurs that requires a valuation, the partners get into an argument and then the lawyers get involved, and, and I'm a lawyer, so I can even talk about this, and, and they start taking positions to leverage more money out of the deal, or they arrive at a legitimate dispute about what the valuation is. And because they haven't got a track record of using the same outside valuator and the same technique of creating valuation and signing off on the valuation, they're really starting from scratch at the worst time they could possibly start. Yeah. 
So an, uh, another, uh, you know, you're talking about litigation, and you're a litigator, and I know one of the value propositions you bring to the client is, is, you know, effectively assessing the value of litigation in the context of ongoing business operations. So tell me how that could have a, a, an impact on someone's intention to exit. Well, obviously, when you're buying a company, you want certainty as much as possible. Litigation is the most expensive form of education and the most obvious indication of risk that you can find in a business. So if you have litigation or threatened litigation in your business, it's going to make it harder to sell, harder to borrow money, and it's going to remove your freedom and ability to get out of the business and create cash wealth uh, when you're ready. So I've, I've developed, Noah, kind of a, an attitude about litigation, having done this for 30 years as, as a transactional lawyer who's done litigation strategies for, for corporate clients for a long time. And, and there are two key points that I, I'll make on that. Number one, um, if you're in litigation or if you need to consider getting into litigation, because sometimes you don't have the choice, you get sued, uh, you should make sure that you analyze your strategy and choose your tactics with a view toward your income statement and balance sheet. Litigation can get very personal. It can involve egos. It can involve uncertainty as to budgets. It can involve uncertainty as to who's right, who's wrong. And if you let your balance sheet and income statement drive some of your decision-making, you'll get out of the litigation quicker, and you'll be able to explain it better when it exists to a buyer. So if the buyer comes and you've got a piece of litigation and you say, hey, we don't know what the outcome will be. We're being sued for $2 million, but we think it's only going to be a $500,000 impact, and we've already accounted for it with reserves on our financial statement, that's a heck of a lot different than, yeah, we were sued by these guys. They're all wrong. They're claiming $10 million. Uh, we don't think we own anything. Litigation's been going on for three years. We don't know what the cost is going to be to continue it, blah, blah, blah. The difference between managing litigation and not managing it is understanding its impact on your income statement and your balance sheet. The second piece of advice I'll give you with respect to managing litigation, though, is, is very counterintuitive. Uh, and we see a lot of guys go out to get really aggressive um, litigators and, and lawyers that, that seem tough. And I think we all, uh, the older we get, the more we learn that, that tough is, is in actions, not words. And a lot of time, tough is being able to get to the truth in the right way, unemotionally and objectively. So we feel like a really good strategy for managing most litigation, not all litigation, but most litigation, is to remember that it's an educational process. And paying the courts to manage that process of educating the other side as to what the proper settlement result in the litigation will be is very expensive. Paying your lawyer to develop a great rapport and level of respect with the opposing counsel, if that's possible, is a great way to shortcut the process and find yourself uh, mediating early and getting a settlement. So one funny thing about litigation, you'll hear lawyers tell you all the time that most cases settle. And then you'll also hear lawyers tell you all the time, well, we don't want to go to settlement conference yet until we finish setting this up, which really means that you're spending a lot of money to get to the same end that you're going to end up at anyway, and it's just beating each other over the head to create that educational process. Well, I once had a, a client tell me they wanted a lawyer who hated their, you know, the defendant's lawyer, and uh, 
I said, no, you you want someone that they're going to go out to lunch after a settlement conference and try and brainstorm ways to resolve this, <laughs> you know. And I can tell you that the happiest clients that I've had at the end of a litigation matter have been in the matters where I had a previous good relationship with opposing counsel because we already trusted each other and we knew that we were on opposite sides, but we also knew that we we had to see each other the next day too and we weren't going to BS each other too much. Uh, we were going to kind of tell it like it is, and personally get to a, a collective evaluation of the strengths and weaknesses of each other's cases so that we could actually help the clients get to a commercially reasonable settlement. Yeah, I totally agree. So how about um, you know working with attorneys and, and others that might be involved in intellectual property? I know that's another one of the things you think attorneys uh, fail to think about. Well, it always surprises me that um, when I see a company that has a great brand name or a great trademark or or some process or or uh, computer software, or even something as simple as a website, and they haven't filed copyrights, they haven't filed trademarks, and uh, they're not keeping their trade secrets properly segregated, or they're not doing agreements with all of their employees that give them the absolute obligation to assign all of their interests in anything they create, intellectual property or otherwise. There's a really simple steps that you can take when you're hiring people and when you're working with and creating things that can be protected by trademark, copyright, or even patent law. There are some really simple things that you can do to create value. And if you don't do those things, uh, you can... You can lose to a competitor where you really shouldn't have lost to a competitor. And something as simple as having a website where you're working to optimize the business on the website every day, it's displayed. And, and other people are going to be able to copy your ideas off that website. Uh, you can't protect those easily, although in very limited circumstances you can get patents for some of these things. But the expression of, of what's on a website, you can uh, copyright some of that. And, and and it's remarkable to me how few people actually file and register their website as a copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office. So, so there are some really simple things that you can do, uh, such as getting copyrights and trademarks and having the right agreements with your employees that really are, are gauges that create intellectual property value. And I can tell you when we allocate purchase price money to in asset deals, um, the value of tech, the, the, the value of goodwill associated with a trademark and other intellectual property can sometimes be fifty or sixty percent of the value of the whole deal. Um, so, but again, it involves hiring a lawyer, uh, making sure that you're paying attention to the details, and it involves hiring the right lawyer too—a lawyer that's had experience representing a company that has been sold before. Uh, one of the things I would ask before I go and hire an intellectual property lawyer for trademarks or copyrights or patents is have you ever sold a company or have you ever been involved in the sale of a company where the intellectual property rights that you helped that company obtain were part of the sale? That's a guy that I want on my team. Great advice. Uh, so let, let's keep moving and, and talk to me about some hidden time bombs that you've seen and liabilities that were undisclosed. Well, so the most common uh, hidden time bomb that we see in deals is uh, uh, debt inventory. Well, the reason I've got all this inventory here is because it's supporting, uh, it's part of the collateral for a loan. And if I write down the inventory value, then I'm going to have to pay down the loan. 
there's got to be a better way. <laughs> what happens is that means that the integrity of your financial statements is not up to par. That means that you probably have more than a problem with the bank and you're delaying the inevitable. And when you go to sell the business, you're going to have a problem buried there. At the very least, it creates a big time delay trying to figure out, so what's really the value of the inventory? Maybe we need to go in and have a valuation done. Maybe we need to readjust that now. And whoops, that's going to create an issue with the bank right away at the time that we least need it. Um, unhappy customers. Uh, that's always uh, a problem. Uh, people who are just not not keeping track of of, of their uh, their customers' uh, satisfaction. Companies that every once in a while do surveys and and check on their happy customers and have uh, testimonials from customers and have reference customers. Uh, one of the best things when we're selling a company uh, representing the sellers and when I'm representing the buyers, one of the things we look for is who are the professionals the company has hired and who are the customers and who are the vendors and will all of those groups of individuals give us a great gung-ho rating on that particular company. If they do, you know, nothing's better than a reference when it, when you're trying to create credibility, when someone else says they think you're great, and especially when that's the right kind of professionals, customers, and, and vendors. So, to the contrary, when we don't have that, again, there's all sorts of hidden hidden time bombs and liabilities and, and things that pop out of the woodwork that when you go into your business and you say, hey, what would I pay for this place and how would I value it? If you know that, by the way, there's some secret deals with a sales guy who doesn't have a no compete who could walk out the door any day and go to his brother's company and take all your business, but somehow or another you've reached an accommodation with him for the moment, but your business is in jeopardy, that's a situation that you want to fix, get into a better agreement framework, find a way out of that because that's going to be a real dampener on selling the company. Yeah. Uh, and, and that happens, I think, all too often as owners don't take a look at that company the way that you're suggesting. And they, they're they so comfortable with the risks because they've been living with it for 15 or 20 or 30 years. And, you know, to them, it's, it's old hat. But to the buyer walking in, it, they don't know how to evaluate the framework the same way that the owner might. So uh, tell me about personal guarantees. What do you think owners should be doing around that? Uh, give as few as possible, and if you're forced to give a personal guarantee, create a, a benchmarking event that causes the guarantee to drop out. Because as you know, they're they're really easy to 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 give, and they're really hard to get off. And when you've got personal guarantees in the business, you've got uh, other other issues that change your decision making uh, when it comes to being tough on certain types of liabilities and and dealing with financing and and banks. And so so. Think about how do I get rid of personal guarantees? One of the ways you get out of personal guarantees is you make sure you've got audited financial statements, diversify your shareholder base, make sure you've got good agreements with respect to share ownership. And uh, there, there are a lot of ways that psychologically you can avoid giving personal guarantees to banks if you've got some of the financial statements in the business to back it up. Um, and how about uh, we're going to talk about number nine, you know, not, not having your key metrics and, and the way to manage them. So. What what do you advise owners to do in order to track their performance? Well, look, when we talk about buying a business, uh, we talk about buying an operating business, and most operating businesses need management to operate the business. 
So if if the buyer, if we're doing due diligence as a buyer and we're looking at a company and we're saying, wow, these guys don't have a performance dashboard. They're not using key performance indicators. They're not using a budget. Um, they're, they're not able to predict the future. Then the premium that buyers normally would pay for a company that is growing and can predict its future and meet its budgets, there just won't be any premium there. If anything, there may be a discount because the buyer will start to say, well, we're going to have to bring in all sorts of new uh, new talent to take this business to the next level. And, and it's not a trivial matter. I mean, let's face it, Noah, uh, getting to that uh, 5 to $7 million level is a lot of work. And then getting through that $10 million revenue number requires you to put in certain additional uh, talent and systems to create scale. And then getting through that 25 to $35 million level, again, creates a whole nother level of scaling. And, and so you have to look at a business in terms of its growth track, in terms of what are the building blocks that it's putting in that protect its value, as opposed to the building blocks that cost money off the income statement. And, and so I'm not advocating rampant spending on these types of things, but I'm suggesting that uh, management and owners who have management in their business that runs the business on analytics and metrics with a few key performance indicators in each area and splitting up the areas of the company's agenda into critical success factors tend to get premiums and, and more interest in selling their business and financing their business. And I think that goes along with the adage, what you measure gets managed, right? I think so. And and what you expect needs to be inspected. Right. Um, so let's wrap it up with your uh, last of your 10 impediments to maximizing your exit opportunity, which is, uh, you know, no liquidity plan that you're aware of. <laughs> so tell me, tell me how you work with owners around that. Well, that's, that's really the question of the day is, is what state of mind does the owner have? And, and if there's no one accountable in the business for maximizing its value and considering every day what would make this business more sellable. I call that a lack of a liquidity plan. And someone in the company should be accountable to manage that liquidity plan. That person should go beyond merely the owner, but it certainly starts at the owner at the top of the business. And everybody should understand that the company is being run for the benefit of its owners, its shareholders, whether it's a family or partners or a single individual. And that that benefit will be measured not just in terms of current income, but in terms of the value being created. Because obviously, when we sell a business, we're selling it for a multiple of the current income if the business actually has been run to create enduring value of some sort in the eyes of a buyer. I can tell you this. I've got a Rolodex with hundreds of guys who've sold their business I can honestly tell you, I can't think of a single one that regrets having sold their business, uh, obviously, if they got money for it. Um, as to my other Rolodex of guys who had the opportunity and then were unable to close their deal or decided not to sell when the opportunities started to present themselves in their marketplace, I have many of those guys who have regrets about that because ultimately entrepreneurs are interested in the creation of wealth and the building of a base of wealth for their families. And, and the entrepreneurs that are the most successful are the ones who are willing to take profits, sell their businesses, move on to the next one and 
continue to watch their build of value and experiences. And, you know, we're all living a lot longer nowadays. The idea that you're going to be in one family business for your entire professional life is probably far outdated. So uh, before we wrap up our interview, Michael, can you share a story with the audience about your own personal experience in in owning and exiting a company? Is there one in particular that you think would uh, have have a moral to the story, either good or bad? Uh, You know, I'll tell you, I I think that um, one of the the best stories that I was personally involved in was a company where we, we had some really great pure technology and we had some great customers and partners using the technology and in that business uh, at the time we sold it we weren't making a profit but we had great technology great partners uh, we had financed it properly we had the right agreements with the people at the top and we sold that business for a multiple of many 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 times top line revenue and everybody made a, a, a good chunk of money in that business and and I think it was probably because we looked at every day what was driving the value of the business. And in that particular business, what was driving the value was the the technology and the team that we built around it. That was an unusual situation. There's not a lot of stories like that out there, but that was very, very unique. Now, I'll tell you a negative one, a negative experience I had, and that was uh, one in which we had a strategic partner in one of my businesses who was a big, uh, a large uh, Fortune 100 company uh, that had promised to do a lot for us and had given us millions of dollars up front for the right to help us sell our product. But because we didn't hold them hard and fast to benchmarks of achievements in those sales, the money they gave us amounted to really concealing their true motives, which were to look at us as a research and development piece and not really be there to share in our success. So we weren't aligned. So my overall advice that I give to countless owners, Noah, and I think it's one of the most important things in building a business, is work every day to create alignment among your board members, even if your family members with different perspectives on the business, alignment and agreement as to the direction of the company and and don't let lack of alignment fester with strategic partners with with executives uh everybody rowing that boat needs to be rowing the same direction well great advice so michael if our listeners want to contact you what's uh, the best way for them to get a hold of you uh, Michael dot Platner at Lewis Brisboy dot com. Uh, and I think if you Google my name, uh, Michael Platner, you'll probably find me. That would be great. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, to all our listeners, don't forget, if you're interested in creating value in your own company, we've got a free resource at freedomexit.com where we've got uh, 53 different ways that you could evaluate and prioritize how to grow value in your business. And I think uh, there's certainly 10 of them are, are ones that Michael shared with us today. So feel free to download that and take a look. And always, um, I'd appreciate it if you give us a rating on iTunes. And uh, we look forward to having you again. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 
1-800-242-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. <laughs>